As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Capital Club Radio, brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance. Please welcome your host, Chairman and CEO, Michael Flock. Good afternoon and welcome to Capital Club Radio. We are absolutely delighted today to have a special guest who has almost two decades of experience in the debt buying industry. Michael Bernstein is the founder emeritus and former CEO of CMAX. He founded CMAX as a debt buyer in 2001 and became one of the leading debt buyers by 2005 when his company generated $60 million in revenue. Following the crash in 2008, However, he decided to exit the debt buying business and transform CMAX into a lender to small and middle market debt buyers. He then sold a majority of his interest in 2010 to JH Capital and Metropolitan Equity Partners in order to increase his capital base and infrastructure. In 2017, he sold the remaining interest in CMAX to JH Capital. During his leadership in CMAX, at CMAX, he processed more than $350 million in loan val- volume, and he recently formed his a new company, his, his own company, MEB Financial S- Solutions, and signed an exclusive distribution agreement with Flock Specialty Finance, our company. And we are excited about our future together and having one of the industry's leading financial experts and deal makers. So, Michael... How did you get into debt buying? I know when you graduated from Georgetown, you got into the mortgage industry, and I think you had a, a small business there that was very successful. That's that's correct. I graduated from Georgetown in 1995, and in the mid to late 90s, um, I acquired uh, several mortgage companies as part of a roll-up strategy. Um, we acquired both the, the servicing assets as well as uh, the origination platforms of these companies. Uh, we typically would sell off the origination platform and focus more on the servicing assets. The um, concept there was to, on the servicing side, was to build a servicing, mortgage servicing portfolio, mostly uh, Fannie Mae, Ginnie Mae, um, Freddie Mac uh, portfolio, but we would sell off, once we acquired these uh, servicing assets, we would then um, stratify them, sell off uh, the um, assets that had a higher um, market value than intrinsic value, reap some uh, profit on those trades, and then we were left with assets that had stronger cash flow than market value. So 
we were left with those mortgage assets at little to no cost basis. So I uh, built up a couple billion dollar portfolio uh, in the late 1990s, um, early 2000s, and then sold that off to uh, one of the major um, uh, mortgage servicing companies. As part of the uh, one of the acquisitions in the mortgage space, we acquired a company that specialized in defaulted second mortgages, and that was really my introduction mm-hmm. into the uh, charge off or defaulted uh, consumer debt market. Okay, and so we, um, you know, as part of that second mortgage operation, we then acquired some other uh, defaulted second mortgage portfolios. We did very well in terms of the recoveries relative mm-hmm. to the purchase price we mm-hmm. paid. So that's really my entree into the charged-off debt uh, industry. So it's defaulted second mortgages. That was the bridge to debt buying? It was a bridge to debt buying. That's correct. Charged-off consumer debt That's portfolios. correct. And then from there, we realized that there were other asset classes within the charge-off space, such as credit card, um, which was the primary focus of Credit Max when it was a debt buyer. So in 2001, uh, myself and my former business partner, we developed a business model to acquire uh, charged off uh, credit card debt at the mm-hmm. time, direct mm-hmm. from uh, issuer. And um, the business model was to outsource the collections uh, to a network of agent collection agencies rather than do, rather than build an internal infrastructure. So uh, we built out the collection network, and then part of the model was after a certain period of time, we would recall the accounts that did not perform, and then we would place them on uh, an online trading platform Mm -hmm. that we built. Um, And, um, you know, so the model, I think, worked very well. It was very unique, I think, to the marketplace because part of the collection model is we looked at – it was more of an incentive-based model in that even though the collectors that were collecting these accounts were not employees of Credit Max, they were employees of the agencies that we contracted with, um, we would provide bonuses to those specific collectors. We would identify which accounts uh, would be placed with each collector based on the debtor attributes mm-hmm. as well as the collector attributes. We would try to match up as best as we as we could. Um, and then we would also then, so we would then provide the collector with specific bonus programs where they could make significant bonuses from us. And this was from Credit Max at the time. This was over and above their normal compensation from the agency. So what happened is we would attract the best performing collectors at those agencies. And even though our collection expense may have been higher than our competitors, our liquidation rates were materially higher. And so that offset the increase in the compensation. That's correct. Incentives. That's, now, when you were in the mortgage industry, did you also outsource every all the servicing there, or did you have your own internal servicing? The companies we acquired had their own servicing. We should have probably consolidated some of that, but it was really – they were left as uh, standalone Um Initially, and, and that was initially, mm-hmm. and then we actually wound up using a subservicer to service. Um, so it was mixed then? It was mixed. Um, it started okay. off as, as yeah, as, uh-huh. but we came to the realization that it made more sense, obviously, to, to outsource. To outsource. So we used a subservicer in New Jersey at the time that serviced all the mortgage loans. It made more sense because there was less investment on your part to own directly the servicers? Is that why? Yeah, I mean, basically, basically we would acquire these these companies that had these servicing assets, and when we took over the portfolios, rather than keep each of the operations um, open and operating, right. which obviously would be expensive, we just would um, 
we had one major, one main subservicer that we used that would subservice all the mortgages for us. Okay. As opposed to having many standalone type inf- right, right, right. companies. So we just thought it made more economic sense. Um, so then it wasn't really a giant departure from your original business to to outsource the collections. Correct. So you correct. had some experience doing it. It wasn't. Uh, that, that's branded. correct. And we, we also had looked at, we did an in-depth analysis at the time, whether it made more sense to outsource collections versus doing it internally. The problem with internal uh, operations is that you're in a way forced to purchase uh, paper. You mm-hmm. may have to overpay in certain situations for paper in order to feed the operation. Right. So we just felt that by outsourcing and with this model that we had in place where we would actually incentivize the collectors right. in a way they, even though they were not really employees of ours, it was almost like we we bought those collectors or those agencies without really paying for them because mm-hmm. they were dedicated to our paper. They right. wanted to be on our right. paper since we were compensating them more right, than right, what right. other companies would right. pay. So. so that was your competitive advantage. Correct. That's part correct. of your secret sauce of Absolutely. differentiation. Yeah. It was really, the, I'd say, the two functions. One was obviously that incentive bonus structure with the uh, collectors. And secondly, we had this placement model that we would look at these at the debtor attributes and the um, – the collector attributes as well and try to pair them up as best as possible. For example, mm-hmm. you may find that a uh, Texas male collector, 25 to 32 years old, may be able to collect better from a, uh, a Texas debtor, hypothetical, right. a male Texas debtor. Right. You know, and there's, and they, they, it's interesting because I remember when we started outsourcing at the time, I must have met with 50 different agencies and we finally, Used about five to seven agencies, but um, when we met with the collectors, they would tell you, you know, certain collectors felt more comfortable collecting, whether it's certain balances, whether it was from a male versus female, whether it was from a certain geographic area. So we said, so why are we giving accounts to, again, hypothetically, a Texas collect, you know, if a Texas collector is telling us, you know, specific collector saying, well, I'd rather collect, you know, balances under 5,000. They give mm-hmm. an explanation as to why they collect better on those accounts. Mm-hmm. And they're really not touching or, or trying to collect the accounts over that. Right. Then why place, you know, accounts? You know, normally what happens at an agency is they randomly assign right. the account. So here it was more in this placement model, we would identify the strengths of the collector and again, try to pair them up with which accounts they felt most comfortable collecting and actually did perform much better on it. So you really then were quite, I, won't, I don't know if it was strategic, but operationally, you, you aligned resources with specific asset classes that you thought there was some harmony, I guess, right? That, that's certain correct. skills and certain asset classes. So it wasn't one size fits all. You were very discriminating in terms of how you did your operational uh, collection planning. That's correct. It was, it was, yeah, there was in-depth analysis that went into that placement model. We, we took, we had, again, we met with literally 50 different agencies. We would meet with the collectors. They uh-huh. would fill out these, uh, collector questionnaire forms. We would track their, uh, collections on an account level basis. And over right. time, it was fine. The, the model was fine tuned to whereby we really, it became, st- I don't want to say statistically valid, but it became more statistically valid in mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Um, we just had a better sense of which account should be placed with which collector based on really the right. different attributes, liquidation performance. Instead, many of these de- um, it, sorry collection owners or agency owners they typically just place accounts randomly, and you know again if if certain collectors collect 
you know, certain types of debt better? Why place the accounts where they're really not giving much focus? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, overall, the uh, the liquidation performance we experienced on that was tremendous, mm-hmm. uh, in part mm-hmm. the placement model, but in part because of this incent- this um, collector bonus incentive program. And this had. alignment of, you know, collection capabilities with asset classes, was that similar to what you did in the mortgage? Uh, not Same really. More, the mortgage space was really, I would say, focused on uh, capitalizing on so again, so part of the, the the mortgage model was basically if you looked at a mortgage portfolio similar to you know a charge off credit card portfolio, certain assets or certain accounts may have higher um, market value than intrinsic value. So mm-hmm. in those situations, we would actually sell off mm-hmm. those accounts and mm-hmm. we would retain the accounts where the cash flow or the economic value was greater than the market value. Right. Um, and it's something that could be done in the charge off, you know, the charge off space as well. Mm-hmm. Charge off credit card space, where if you looked at a portfolio, you could identify certain accounts within the portfolio right. where there's greater market value than economic value, and vice versa. So, yep. to me, um, in the mortgage side, I was able to, in those situations, I would sell off probably. Again, it depended on the deal, but probably anywhere from. 60 to 80 percent of the portfolio be left with that remaining 20 to 40 percent at little or no cost basis uh-huh. so that's what made it attractive to me is that i wasn't i wasn't tying up investment dollars in those portfolios right. I was basically recouping right. most of my or, into, or most if not all of the investment right and it was left with just you know this residual piece that generated nice cash flows i had no debt against those portfolios right so let me let me step back for a second and, and i look at the the timeline of michael bernstein's life so you you graduated from georgetown in 95 so that's right and then you started the mortgage servicing the, the mortgage investment company it actually started I, before that i say 94 was when i started because so i started in georgetown yeah well I, yeah started at georgetown and then but i'd wow. say most of the acquisitions were actually um 95 after i graduated through 2000 huh and so you had that company f- up until was it 2001 when Two, you founded CMS? yeah 2001 is when it basically it transitioned over again based upon this one company that had a, a second mortgage, um, right? You know, D- default. default. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, Michael, did you have this this burning passion to have your own business when you were in college? Is yes. That, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you knew it, it was going to be financial. Financial. Yes, I was a finance major at Georgetown, and I wrote my thesis. And, yeah. So I've always had a, a finance. What was your background. thesis about? It was. It's interesting about. I studied the um, the junk bond market. Okay. You know, in the late you know late eighties and right. Which, uh, so it's interesting how some of these, yeah, the, my, yeah, the dress one of your heroes, one of my (laughs) heroes. But the point is that, uh, but I studied that whole market. It was very interesting to me. And it's interesting how many of these assets over the past, um, you know, five to seven years, um, some of the, you know, these assets to, uh, there's some parallels with certain assets that I financed. Um, relative to some of those sort of, you know, junk bond, right. you know, how they were perceived in the marketplace. Uh-huh. And, and that was kind of, it was interesting about that market too, is that those were assets, um, I should say assets. Those were, you know, higher yielding assets where the cash flows were more attractive probably than, right. than the, you right. know, the market value. But so then, so CMAX was started in 2001. How did you capitalize it? How did you get it? Would, Get start. Was it with the capital that you made on the sale of the first company? Yeah, in part, yes. Um, I, I, I contributed about 25% of the initial capital. I raised the other 75% mostly through uh, 
family and friends, but mostly through family. Um, and I also had a, uh, a partner in that business, right. um, who was based in California. And, um, so, you know, we, we, in 2001, we started it. The model took a few years to develop. We studied, we had access through different relationships to about 25 billion of charged off credit card debt. Okay. So as part of the model in 2001, we, we did some purchasing from 2001 to 2004. We did some purchasing on a small basis, but mm-hmm. it was more to test the model, refine the model. Mm-hmm. And then in 2004, I'd say is really when we started aggressively uh, purchasing paper, mm-hmm. you know, based upon the prior three years history. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So part of the model uh, you already described, the operational piece where you were aligning, um, you know, the right kinds of collectors with the right kinds of assets and you differentiated. I think you said you're servicing by some very creative incentives to specific collectors and specific agencies. What else can you describe about the model that was that was uh, you thought maybe different, unusual Kind sure. Of full of competitive advantage. What what was different about the model that you developed for the first phase of CMAX? Sure, sure. So um, the second part of it. So we would typically, when we purchased a portfolio, we would outsource the collections for about a six month period. At right. the end of six months, we would recall those accounts that uh, did not perform. Okay. We built an online trading platform that had five thousand registered buyers. It was called the NDSE. Try to you know similar to the NYSE. Right. We wanted to make it the online trading platform to the industry because what's interesting about this space is the fact that it's large. This market is is tremendously large, and um, it's interesting how there's not that much transparency. Mm-hmm. For example, I've been at conferences where I'll speak to two different uh, groups, a buyer and a seller on a specific trade. They'll tell me one, one will tell me they sold the debt at a certain price. The buyer will tell me they sold the de- that bought the debt at a different price. Right. There's really no transparency in this marketplace. So we tried to bring transparency through this online trading platform. We built it in 2004. We had a, um, we built out our infrastructure at the time. We hired about um, six sales reps and I believe about four business development reps. The, the sales reps would interface with the buyers mm-hmm. and the business development reps would interface at the time with, with issuers. Mm-hmm. So initially when we when we built this pl- this trading platform, we were selling our own debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the time, we really just focused actually on the sales side. We, we wound up registering about 5,000 buyers, mostly small to mid-sized uh, debt buyers, so many uh, collection law firms, and the concept of that trading platform was to sell to the buyer in whose hands the debt is worth the most. Mm-hmm. So that system had the capability to sell debt on an account level, state level, county level, to really fetch the highest uh, price for the seller. Because again, and but meanwhile, it would still make economic sense for the buyer because if you're, mm-hmm. for example, a collection law firm in Florida. In let's assume in uh, Dade County, uh, you may not want to purchase. Let's assume you purchase in, in Palm Beach County, Broward, and Dade County. You may not want to purchase accounts in Northern Florida because there's different just demographics. There's different court systems. You may have to outsource. Um, so we wanted the capability to through the system to basically sell whether it was on account, uh, well, sorry, account level or county level or state level. And again, we had about 5,000 registered buyers, I think of which about like 1,500 were collection law firms. Um, and we would wind up putting our accounts on the system and they would sell out, right. I mean, immediately. 
And so you then had sort of these national buyers competing with the right. state buyers. But right. when it went live on the system, we would announce, we'd send out a marketing campaign and we'd say, okay, th- this particular portfolio is going live at, you know, 12 p.m. Right, you know, right, on, right. on Monday. And once it hit the, and we'd have the sales reps, you know, right. interface with their right. client base. And once it hit the system, it would, yeah. it would move, I mean, Fast. very, very quickly. So let's fast forward. In 2008, though, CMAX decided, you decided to get out of, of debt buying and into lending. Now, that was the year of the crash. Did have, that have something to do with it? In part, yes. Um, one thing I, not just myself noted, but um, with, the, with the charged off, mostly credit card uh, debt, it, um, there were cycles that I experienced over a, you know eight, nine-year period from 2001 through 2009 where it was extremely profitable mm-hmm. when prices were you know relatively low i remember we were paying for fresh debt in 2000 between 2001 and 2005 we were paying i think 6 or 6 and a half cents for fresh paper fresh credit card paper then in 2000 i think it was 6 or 7 it, it skyrocketed to 11 or 12 cents so all the profit you make when you're buying at 6 or 6 and a half right. you then wind up giving away a lot of that when it hits 11 or 12 cents um and then when the prices came back down, whenever I think it was two thousand seven and eight, it was profitable again. But there were signs of it then ratcheting it back up, and you know prices today are mm-hmm. are astronomical right. for credit card debt. It's trading right. in the mid to high teens. Right. Um, so the model we thought the finance model just made more sense because if you're advancing roughly sixty to seventy percent of the purchase price you're really not that exposed. I mean, we did in-depth analysis showing that even at the the height of the market back in whatever it was, 06 or 07, when it was trading at 11 or 12 cents, mm-hmm. that if you advance you know, 60 or 70% mm-hmm. against that, it, it's not right. nearly as risky as paying. So it's less risky. That's why you decided to do financing as opposed to direct buying. Correct. And the yields also, I thought, were somewhat comparable. Mm-hmm. Again, it depends. The right. debt buying market can be very attractive when prices are low. Right. But then again, all the profit mm-hmm. you make when it's low right. can then dissipate when did, it's Let me ask you the question. Now, in 2008, did CMAX, the debt buyer, actually lose money when the market crashed? Um, I, I don't recall in 2008 um, if... I, I I don't recall to be honest. Um, well, if it was really bad, you would have recalled. So you can't. Yeah, no, I don't uh, think it was. Yeah, but I but I do recall that again. It was very profitable during those years where right. the pricing was low, and then it was less profitable, if not even you know operating at a at a slight loss when prices would escalate. Mm-hmm. So it was one of those things. I felt the financing side could generate very attractive yields, but you're not taking nearly the same risk profile. Right. But in 09, I mean, the prices really f- fell. They fell a and, lot. So I, right. part but, of me thinks it would be natural for you to jump back in as a debt buyer. But Yeah, but then, again, if you look at where prices have been the last few years, they're back up to, I mean, historical price. I mean, right now, the, the prices, again, for fresh um, credit card debt is in the mid to high teens, which I, I don't, you know, from right. my perspective, we, we could never sustain those type of levels. Right. I mean... Now, throughout all this time, I mean, you say in your bio you, you processed $350 million or more in loans, and I know we've had a short time together as partners now. I've watched you negotiate, and, and you are an awesome negotiator, one of the best I've ever seen. Um, 
someday I expect you'll write your own <laughs> The Art of the Deal by Michael Bernstein. Can, can you share with our listeners kind of some of your principles of negotiation? Because you obviously like it. You're very good at it. Um, no, I appreciate well, those. Those the, are very kind. What work, are your but, secrets that you're willing to share with the public today? Yeah, no, um, I think the most important thing from my perspective, and everyone has a different negotiating style, it, it's critical to understand um, the objectives uh, from all parties' perspectives. You want to make sure that the deal works for both sides. I've been in some situations um, where I thought I – I don't want to use the word out negotiated, but you know, just the deal needs to work for both sides and you want to be equitable and fair. And, um, you just, and it, the other thing that's critical is also to listen because sometimes you just need to understand really, they may not be saying exactly what they, what they mean. And okay. so sometimes it's also just understanding, um, certain things like that where they, cause sometimes when you're speaking with someone, you right. may, you mean, you may need to pick up on things that they're really not saying, uh-huh. but, in terms, it's just to me, it's, it's critical to understand their objectives, their needs, and to make a deal fair where it works for both sides. There's nothing worse. So don't where, get greedy. Don't get greedy. Absolutely. Because, Does this mean you always split the difference or not? No, I'm not saying that, but, but the point is, I, I think again, it's important because you don't want to be, you don't have a, a short-sighted uh, mentality with this. I mean, my, my, my business style is, I, you know, again, I don't want to be short-sighted. I like to look at, at you know, long-standing relationships, which I've had over the years. I mean, and, you know, I, I think, again, it's just it's treating the, uh, the, the client or the individual fairly and just making sure that the deal works for both sides. Because mm-hmm. if it doesn't, it's just going to be a short-lived uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's, it's, there, there's time and resource that goes into building that relationship. And the last thing you want to do is just have – a one-off type situation where you may have out negotiating them on one specific transaction, but they feel they've been slighted at that point, and then it's right. difficult to maintain the relationship going forward. So think long term. I, I think so. Think beyond the deal. Beyond the deal, absolutely. It's a, were, I look at the relationship. I also try to put myself in their position as well. Uh-huh. And I, I I was involved in a recent transaction where I wasn't negotiating with this uh, particular individual. But I was trying to explain to them that they were in negotiation with another lender. And I told them, I said, look, you don't want them to perceive it that it's a one-sided negotiation. I said, you should right. um, volunteer, you know, basically provide them some trade-off so that they view it that you're being genuine in the negotiation. And, you know, so he took that to heart. And I think that he actually, you know... Um, you know, relayed that sort of message. And I think hopefully that that deal, you know, it's a, it's a transaction. I've been um, working with this one particular group. And I think that that deal, uh, you know, should come to fruition. But, you know, to me, it's always important to, to look at, you know, all sides and just be fair with it. And uh, I try to put myself in the other person's position as well. And I, again, I think the most important thing is look at the overall relationship, not just a specific deal. So that's interesting. So it's not just the deal. It's not just a transaction. It's a relationship which may generate more transactions Correct. in the future because yeah. you've maintained a relationship. You haven't burned a bridge. Correct. In other words. Because to establish a relationship, it's time, resource. So all, right. you, know, to, you don't want a situation where the counterparty feels that they've been slighted or it's been a right. one-sided negotiation. Right. So, cause so you're building trust. That's correct. Right. And fairness. That's correct. So you've built a few companies now in your, you know, your young life. Um, you, you know, obviously companies don't grow in a straight line. You must have had some obstacles along the way. Well, what were some of the obstacles and how did you overcome them? 
Yeah, no, I mean, I, there's definitely been obstacles. There's no question about it, uh, whether it's from uh, funding situations or lack of funding situations to, um, uh, empl- you know, employee matters to, you know, management type matters. It, it, it it's varied across the board. Um, on the funding side, I've had some situations and you have to be able, it's, it's part of business and you have to be able to manage client expectations. Um, I've been in situations where, you know, there's been limited funding and you just mm-hmm. have to, I think be transparent with the clients so they understand and I think that they respect that as opposed to, you know, not having full disclosure and, um, you know, time, you know, so I, I think that, um, you know, dealing with the, and again, I'm just using that as an example that I've, I've come across is, you know, there, there have been situations where, you know, in, in the finance business or debt buying business where there's been some funding crunches, you know, funding mm-hmm. crunches that it, it can get, um, you know, it can be difficult because you have to try to maintain, the existing business, but you have to also be transparent with them and, and explain the situation. And, you know, oftentimes, I mean, w- thankfully we were able to resolve those. They were typically just very short term issues. Right. Um, but nevertheless, you also have to prepare yourself that if for some reason it has to, it has to extend beyond that short period that, um, you have to have sort of a backup or other, you know, uh, backup solutions. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so you've had multiple organizations, uh, different types of people, collectors, salespeople, finance people. What are some of the lessons in leadership that you've kind of developed over the years that you could share with us? Yeah, I mean, to me, um, I like to lead by lead by example. I mean, to to me, what's critical is is hard work, persistence. Uh-huh. Um, and I always look for those attributes, certain attributes that I, I try to, you know, find when I, whether I'm right. looking to hire someone or enter into a relationship. Um, there's a lot of smart people in the world. And, and to me, what, what can separate is hard work, persistence. And mm-hmm. I know on some of these deals, they can take, um, you know, it, it, whatever's needed to get, to get mm-hmm. a deal done. Sometimes you may have to go the extra mile, but it, it's worth it. But, and sorry, so back to your question now is that, you know, I, I think it's important that you view, um, when I would look for someone to bring on board, I would definitely, you know, see if there was a way to, to gauge their, their work efforts and their right. obviously integrity. I mean, those, those, that goes without saying, but you want to, um, you just want to make sure that they have the right, you know, work ethic and that, you know, cause, cause again, the, look, again, there's a lot of smart people, but the fact is if, if they're, you know, hardworking, that can, that can separate. You don't want someone that, that just puts in the minimum and expects right. to get, right. It doesn't work. Do you need experience in finance to be on your team? I'm sorry. Do you need experience in finance? Yeah, I think having some experience in finance is, has definitely helped. I think that understanding it's the collection side um, is obviously also important. So understanding having a finance background definitely helps. Um, understanding collections. I mean, it, I think my my background actually works out quite well for this. The fact that have a finance degree, but I, I studied the collection industry for and was involved in it for nine or ten years, and then before I got into the the finance side of the business. And so I think the combination has really helped me quite a bit. Mm-hmm. 
So what's your vision for the future of uh, of MEB uh, Finance Solutions? And what's your outlook on the debt buying industry? Yeah, well, I, I think times are very exciting right now. They went through, you know, with the macroeconomic crisis in 2009, many of the issuers uh, basically you know, stopped originating to the, you know, lower tiered marketplace. So, you know, charge offs materially declined in, you know, 2010, 11, 12. But then there were many, um, sort of these subprime issuers that filled the, that void that came about in the, you know, 2011, 12, 13, 14. So you're seeing a lot of that supply side now come to the marketplace. There's the, you know, online lenders, there's the, the short-term installment loans, there's, you know, payday, there's different types of asset classes that have, you know, come about to the underbanked consumer as well as to the underbanked retailer. The, this merchant cash advance business has been, mm-hmm. has grown tremendously over the past five years. And again, that, that, that's a segment that I've just, I find very interesting because, um, Again, it's for the underbanked consumer and underbanked retailer, and there needs to, there's obviously a strong demand there. Um, with some of the pricing in the marketplace, such as credit card debt, it's just again, it's at at prices right. that I just uh, it's it's difficult to um, you know to buy at those levels. But um, no, in terms of I, the supply side now, it just seems tremendous with some of these. You uh, see it growing and growing with some of these other assets. Yeah, I mean, we I, I was just at this conference. You know, two weeks ago, this Lend360 uh, conference, and that's really for these consumer-type pro- consumer online lending, lenders. online lenders, yep. and you have... Is that taking over the credit card? Yeah, it's, it's definitely, yeah, there's a market shift in terms of from credit card to, again, some of these other type lenders, the online lenders, whether it's the lending clubs, the world, the prospers, um, and then you obviously have, you know, whether it's the short-term installment loan providers, but there's, there's definitely um, a shift in that direction. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we got to wrap it up. I feel like we've only scratched the surface in this half hour. You've got a fascinating career, and we appreciate your stories, um, both in mortgage and debt buying and now in debt uh, portfolio financing. Um, your deals, uh, your, your lessons about deals are, are fascinating, and I hope someday we can look forward to seeing your book, um, The Art of the Deal by uh, Michael Bernstein. No, thank you very much. I look forward to the uh, continued uh, strategic partnership. Thank you, Michael. We do, too. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for joining Michael Flock and his guests on the Capital Club Radio Show. For more information on future interviews, please visit us at flockfinance.com. This program is brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance, where clients are provided knowledge and insights to help them grow their business in complex and risky markets. Flock is more than a transaction. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.